Good evening. <clears throat> so tonight we're mostly going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. But as you're turning there, go ahead and mark um, Proverbs. Be ready to flip over there also. <clears throat> and as we begin session 4, I want to give you a little quiz. And you're not going to be graded on it, <clears throat> but I want you to respond just with a show of hands. I like laughter better than crying. I like weddings better than funerals. I like to think of my birthday better than I like to think of my dying day. <clears throat> I like the shortcut better than the long way around. I like the good old days better than I like now. <laughs> well, every one of you flunked Solomon's test. And I'm sure you have a hard time believing that, but uh, <clears throat> Solomon's going to teach us some things about life that are they're very unusual. Things that we would never hear anyplace else in things that no one else would ever talk about unless he were a man with all the wealth and all the wisdom in the world and could sort them out as they really are. In the seventh chapter of Ecclesiastes, the word better is found 11 times, and Solomon is going to tell us that some things are better than other things, and in doing so, he's going to help us understand why you answered all those questions wrong. And Solomon is going to show us in these verses things we often consider to be bad, harmful, and he's going to show us that sometimes they can be good and helpful. Sometimes adversity has an advantage, and sometimes difficulty develops us in ways that nothing else can. And in these verses, Solomon is going to show us that conventional thinking outside the box, if you will, about life as it really is and not as we wish it were. And the first thing he tells us in the first four verses is, number one, that sorrow is better than laughter. If you'll notice in verse 1, <clears throat> that looking back is better than looking forward. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the days of death <clears throat> and the day of death than the day of one's birth. And you may say, well, well, how can the day of death be better than one's birthday? And if you look at the first few verses, you'll see that it sounds like Solomon is telling us that a funeral is better than a festival. And what could he possibly mean? And before I try to answer this question, I want to tell you something about Solomon. Solomon's not some gloomy old man who, who looked at the dark side of things through a, his whole life. Solomon is the guy who wrote eight times in this book, if you remember, that uh, we're supposed to enjoy life. And one of the more reoccurring phrases in the book of Ecclesiastes, I've discovered that since life is short and unpredictable, the best thing one can do is enjoy life and understand it is a gift from God. And Solomon is one who wrote in the third chapter, there's a time to weep, and there's also a time to rejoice. And Solomon is the author of, of the Proverbs, and the Proverbs, there are three occasions he tells us about the importance of enjoying life. Look over at Proverbs 15, verse 13. Solomon tells us that a merry heart makes a cheerful conscience, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. 
And look on down to 15, Proverbs 15, 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Now, if you will, flip over to chapter 17 and look at verse 22. A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. So in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, don't assume Solomon is just a grumpy old man who had a sour outlook on life. Solomon actually has a proper perspective of joy and sorrow. And to understand what Solomon is talking about here in the seventh chapter, what he means by the statement, the day of death is better than the day of birth, we, we have to look back at the first verse and the first statement. Look back at, back at verse 1 again. A good name is better than precious ointment. And he says something similar to this in Song of Solomon. And if you will, flip over there. All these books are right here back to back. But if you look at chapter 1 in Song of Solomon, Kyle can probably get that. He's got it. Um, at verse 3, it says, Because of the fragrance of your, good, <clears throat> of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Now, you wouldn't get this if you read this in English, in English language, but if you read it in Hebrew, you would, and you would notice that it, this is actually a play on words. In Hebrew, the word name is shem, and the word ointment in the Hebrew word is shemin. So Solomon's saying here it is better to... <coughs> uh, Solomon's saying here that, it, that, is, that shem is better than shemin, and Psalm is saying here that it is better to die than to be born. And obviously you have to be born before you can die. But what he is saying, there, there are two days in a person's life which are prominent. And that's the day that he is born, and that's when you receive your name. And then the day that your name shows up in no obituaries, which is the day you die. And what happens between those two days is, you know, what determines whether your name is a lovely ointment of Shemin, or if it's a foul stench. Now watch carefully the, the wisdom Solomon has here. If you die with a good name, you can no longer do anything to tarnish that name. But the day when you receive your name, you have your whole life before you that is yet unwritten. And in that respect, if you have a good reputation, the day of your death is better than your, the day of your birth. And what Solomon is saying is, looking back at life, a life well lived is better than looking forward to a life unlived. And he is saying there, there is a sense about the ending of a good life that is better than the beginning of an unknown life. And notice second, looking back is better than looking forward, but number two, learning from mourning is easier than learning from, from feasting. Notice in verses two through four. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for it is the end of all men. All the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for a sad conscience the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the house of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, now notice how many times here he is talking about the heart. And he's talking here about the character and how we develop as people, and Solomon is not telling us we need to be preoccupied with death, but he was reminding us that we need to take life serious and not let it slip through our fingers. And it is easier to learn from adversity than it is prosperity. Why is sorrow better than laughter? Because a person who, who, is, who is, is laughing is not really facing reality. We do not learn anything about nature of life through joyous celebration. And we pretend happiness is what makes us whole. 
But a man's highest purpose is not to be happy. Man's highest purpose is to know God. Let's say it one more time. Man's highest purpose is not to be happy, but man's highest purpose is to know God. A.W. Tozer said that God cannot use a man until he has hurt him deeply. And there's a lot of truth to that. Great men and great women are shaped by pain, and that's the first thing he wants us to know. But man's highest purpose is to know God, and you get to know God better when you face things that are too big for yourself. So sorrow is better than laughter. That's the first thing. Number two, rebuke is better than praise. Look at verse 5. It is better to hear rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the cracking of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This is also vanity. Now, when we get rebuked for something we have done, we're prone to resist it, to resent it, and to return it. But Solomon puts a whole new spin on here in Ecclesiastes when he tells us that the rebuke of a wise man is far better than the praise of a fool. And in fact, he likens the praise of a fool to the crackling of thorns in a fire. Now watch this. He used an illustration that the Palestinians would have really understood because a Palestinian, when they wanted a short little burn they, to just warm something up for a moment, they would put thorns under a pot and turn it to a fire, and it would quickly burn out. <clears throat> you could warm up maybe a cup of water or something small, but you would never use thorns for a lasting fire that would need to be used for, for cooking or something genuine. So in the same way, Solomon says the praise of a fool is only temporary. It just flames up. It just makes a lot of racket, a lot of noise, like, just like thorns would. It has no lasting value. But the rebuke of a wise man, that is something very valuable. The value of rebuke as a man of wisdom is very prominent in the writing of Solomon. Notice how often this comes up in Solomon's writing, as I want you to notice this, because one thing that we do worst is accepting correction, accepting rebuke, or accepting instruction from someone. But Solomon says rebuke of a wise man is better than praise of a fool. Flip over to Proverbs, Proverbs 10. Now listen to the words of the Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 17. He who keeps instructions is the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. Now look down to Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Now look on down to uh, Proverbs 15, 5. A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. On down to chapter 17, verse 10. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. Rebuke to a wise man does more good than beating a fool a hundred times. Look on to Proverbs 25, verse 12. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is, <clears throat> is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. Look down to Proverbs 27, 5. Open rebuke is better than love, carefully concealed. Now look down to Proverbs 29.1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Now look down to verse 15. 
The rod, <clears throat> the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So Solomon is saying, don't fall for praise from people who don't really care about you, but be more interested in rebuke from somebody who, <clears throat> who is wise and who loves you and listen carefully to their instruction. So sorrow is better than laughter. Rebuke is better than praise. And here's number three. The hard way is better than the easy way. And that's why a shortcut is never the good answer. And every one of you here, you, you raised your answer, you'd rather take the shortcut than the long way. But how many of you know that shortcuts get you in trouble? Listen to what Solomon says in a, back to Ecclesiastes. It's going to be in a verse 7 here. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reasoning as a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Now to bribe someone, what is that? It's actually a shortcut for us to get our own way. But it will always be the hard way. It will corrupt your integrity. It will destroy your impurity of your heart. And Solomon says we're, <clears throat> we're to be patient in the spirit and to be, <clears throat> be proud in our spirit. We don't need to take things in our own hands, if you will. We need to wait on the Lord to accomplish His purpose through us. And ask yourself this question, where will it lead me? What will the result of this? <clears throat> what, what, what will be the result of this action? And what will the outcomes of this particular deed? Always remember this: God saves His best for last, and Satan will always front load His, and it's downhill from there on. You may get a kick out of a glass of wine or a strong drink. But then it turns to addiction, and it goes downhill, and it goes downhill. You may get a thrill from a snort of cocaine, but it will destroy your life. So the end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing, and that's true in life, isn't it? If it's better in the Lord's hands, He always makes it better and better and better to a brighter day. And the hard way is better than the easy way. And here's the last thought. Today is better than yesterday. Psalm says in verse 10, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Don't live in the past. Don't live always talking about the good old days. The good old days really don't exist. Except for in the minds of the people who have decided to avoid living in the present. Arthur Bennett wrote, wrote a prayer, and it's called The Valley of Vision, and it wonderfully summarizes some of the things that, that's in this section of Ecclesiastes. Listen carefully. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me <clears throat> to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, and to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrived spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the, <clears throat> the victorious soul, that having nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime the stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find thy light in thy darkness, thy life in my death, 
thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, and my glory in my valley. You find the glory of God in the valley. You don't find it on the mountaintop. When you're on the mountaintop, you forget how you got there. You forget why you're there, and you forget who brought you there. When you're in the valley, and you have no place to turn but to turn to the Lord, you see Him high, and you see Him lifted up, and you discover that God is enough in any situation, if you know Him personally. And you, you might say, well, I don't know how this works, the wisdom words of Solomon. And I have a sense in my heart they are true, but how does God use them? They remind you of, of something in the New Testament over in uh, Romans 8, 28. And, and, it's, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And the Bible says it, and we know that. We're going through stuff we don't understand. It would seem like our life is turned upside down. And all, <clears throat> all the things we understood before just don't seem to fit. But we know one thing. God knows what He's doing. And we know all things work together for God. For those who love Him and call according to His purpose. That's a promise, that's a promise to you and that's a promise to me. You say, then why am I so confused <clears throat> as a Christian? I don't know what to do. And twice in, in Romans chapter 8, we're told we know something. And, and for instance, look back at verse 22. We read that Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together unto now. What exactly does that mean? We know that, that this is what it means. We know that this is the way of life and that life is going to get better, that God has a plan ultimately, and we also know He's in charge of right now. Then why am, I so, why am I so confused? Look down at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. <clears throat> do you remember what we've learned so far in Ecclesiastes, that, that, that God's plan is good? We know that. His purpose is clear, we know that. But his program is mysterious. And that's why we don't always know how to pray. Does that change the fact that God's plan is always good? Absolutely not. God's plan is good. We know that. We know that, that he is working all things for the good. And we know that someday we're going to be with him. And in the meantime, he's still in charge. But do we understand what he's doing? No. That's why we don't know how to pray. Am I the only one you know, that struggles with that sometimes? That's why I feel sometimes I know what I know, but also know what I don't know. I know God's plan is good, but I cannot for life me figure out His program. So I pray, and my spirit groans, and I pray like this, Lord, I know You're up to good. I just wish I could figure it out. I know you never do anything that would ultimately hurt me, but God, somehow this doesn't make sense, and I don't know how to pray. So when I go through times like this, I have to do what Paul teaches us to do. I have to take a step back, and I have to remember what I do know. And I thank God I know <clears throat> what I do know is more important than what I cannot figure out. Let's see, we're at about 5.30. Let's take... Let's come back at uh, 535. We'll let uh, Dr. Jeremiah pick up at verse, uh, I believe it's verse 11. He'll take us the rest of the chapter.
Although poor, he was envied by all, for he owned a very beautiful white horse. Even the king coveted his treasure. A horse like this had never been seen before. Such was its splendor, its majesty, and its strength. People offered fabulous prices for this steed, but the old man always refused. He, he would say, this horse is not a horse to me. It's a person. How could you sell a person? He's a friend, not a possession. How could you sell a friend? The man was poor, and the temptation was great, but he never sold the horse. One morning he found that the horse was not in the stable. All the village came to see him. You old fool, they scoffed. We told you that someone would steal your horse. We warned you you'd be robbed. You're so poor, how could you ever hope to protect such a valuable animal? Would have been better to have sold him. You could have gotten whatever price you wanted. No amount would have been too high, and now the horse is gone, and you've been cursed with this misfortune. The old man responded, Don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. That is all we know. The rest is judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can you know? How, how can you judge? The people contested, Don't make us out to be fools. We may not be philosophers, but great philosophy is not needed. The simple fact is that your horse is gone, and that is a curse. The old man spoke again. All I know is that the stable is empty and the horse is gone. The rest I don't know. Whether it be a curse or a blessing, I can't say. All we know is what we know, and all we can see is a fragment. Who can say what will come next? The people of the village laughed. They thought that the man was crazy. They had always thought he was a fool. If he wasn't, he would have sold the horse and lived off the money. But instead, he was a poor woodcutter, an old man still cutting firewood and dragging it out of the forest every day and selling it. He lived hand to mouth in the misery of poverty. Now he had proven that he was indeed a fool. After 15 days, the horse returned. He hadn't been stolen. He'd run away into the forest. Not only had he returned, he brought a dozen wild horses with him. <laughs> Once again, the village people gathered together, and they told the woodcutter, Old man, you were right and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was a blessing. Please forgive us. The man responded, Once again, you go too far. Say only that the horse is back. State only that a dozen horses returned with him, but don't judge. How can you know if this is a blessing or not? You only see a fragment. Unless you know the whole story, how can you judge? You read only one page of a book. Can you judge the whole book? You read only one word of a phrase. Can you understand the phrase? Life is so vast, yet you judge all of life with one page or one word. All you have is a fragment. Don't say this is a blessing. No one knows. I am content with what I know. I am not perturbed but what I don't know. Well, maybe the old man is right, they said to one another. So they said little, but deep down they knew he was wrong. They knew it was a blessing. I mean, after all, 12 wild horses had returned with one horse. With a little bit of work, the animals could be broken and trained and sold for much money. Now, the old man had a son. Actually, it was his only son. And the young man began to break the wild horses. After a few days, he fell from one of the horses and he broke both of his legs. Once again, the villagers gathered around the old man and cast their judgments. You were right, they said. You proved you were right. The dozen horses were not a blessing. They were a curse. Your only son has broken his legs. Now in your old age, you have no one to help you. Now you are poorer than ever. 
The old man spoke again. You people are so obsessed with judging. Don't go so far. Say only that my son broke his legs. Who knows if it's a blessing or curse? No one knows. We only have a fragment. You know, life does come in fragments. It so happened that a few weeks later, the country engaged in war against a neighboring country. All the young men of the village were required to join the army. Only the son of the old man was excluded because he was injured. Once again, the people gathered around the old man, crying and screaming because their sons had been taken. There was little chance they would return. The enemy was strong. The war would be a losing struggle. They would never see their sons again. You were right, old man, they wept. God knows you were right. This proves it. Your son's accident was a blessing. His legs may be broken, but at least he is with you. Our sons are gone forever. The old man spoke once again. It is impossible to talk with you folks. You always draw conclusions. No one knows if it's a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. The woodcutter had captured the essence of Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes. We've already learned that sometimes crying is better than laughing. Sometimes funerals are better than weddings. Sometimes a man's dying day is better than his birthday. Criticisms can be better than compliments. The long way around is better than the shortcut, and today is really better than the good old days. All of these thoughts that seem to turn life upside down and make us wonder, is this how life works? How do you make this fit? All of these things which are, which we never thought would be. Well, Solomon is going to teach us the lesson of the woodcutter today. He's going to teach us that in not knowing what we cannot know, there is a great deal of wisdom. Wisdom is not trying to judge the book by the cover. Wisdom is understanding that you have only a fragment. Only God has the entire manuscript. How blessed we are if we have the wisdom of the woodcutter and the wisdom of Solomon. Here in the last half of chapter 7, we discovered two gigantic reasons for gratitude. If we have wisdom, we should be thankful for the perspective of wisdom and for its power in our lives. First of all, in verses 11 through 18, Solomon teaches us that we should thank God for the perspective of wisdom. Wisdom may not solve all of our problems. It may not make all of the tough things good, but wisdom gives us an understanding of what's going on. It helps us to see things in perspective. For instance, wisdom helps us to deal with prosperity. Verses 11 and 12 say, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. It is better, said Solomon, to have wisdom than to have a good fortune or a good inheritance. Wisdom does not depreciate, nor is it subject to inflation. And Solomon says that a person who has wisdom and wealth is doubly blessed. In fact, it becomes his defense twice over. Wisdom gives life to those who have it. That is what Solomon said in Proverbs. That's what he says here, Proverbs 8.35. He says, for whoever finds me, wisdom finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. According to Solomon, wisdom is like a shelter to those who have it, and it's a greater source of security than money could ever be. 
It is amazing how very few people there are who both have wealth and wisdom. Have you noticed? But a person who is wealthy without wisdom can end up being the most miserable creature on God's green earth. And I've met a few of them, have you? They have wealth and they have no wisdom. Wealth has become for them a curse instead of a blessing. Solomon says that wisdom is something we should be grateful for because it gives perspective to us. And wisdom helps us to understand that prosperity is not the end all of everything, that if you have prosperity and you don't have the wisdom to enjoy it, you're better off to be poor. Next, he says that wisdom helps us to deal with providence. Notice verses 13 and 14. Consider the word of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Solomon says the truth of the matter is that affliction is the appointment of God and it's the crooked thing we can't fix. We like to, wouldn't we? We'd like to straighten out all the crooked spaces. Solomon says that the crooked thing is adversity. And the truth of the matter is that affliction is this appointment of God, and the crooked thing that we think needs straightening is the present of affliction and adversity. Walter Kaiser, who is a wonderful uh, scholar, has paraphrased these verses that we just read like this, and I want to read his paraphrase. Listen carefully. Look with wonder, admire, and silently wait for the result of God's work. The contrasts of life are deliberately allowed by God so that men should ultimately develop a simple trust and dependence in God. For prosperity and the goods from God's hand, be thankful and rejoice, which is what we're doing today. But in adversity and the crookedness of life, think. Reflect on the goodness of God and the comprehensiveness of his plan for men. What Solomon teaches us is that we ought to thank God that we have learned from the troubles we've had, too. Job one time when he was going through the loss of everything that he experienced, you remember he lost everything all in one short period of time? His family, all of his funds, his health, everything. The only thing was left with his, was his wife. And I often thought that God leaving his wife was the biggest curse he ever got, you know, because she was a real pain. And she was chiding him one day about all of the suffering he was going through and telling him, what a terrible thing it was that God had treated him this way. And Job turned to his wife. I can almost see this conversation in my mind's eye. Job chapter 2, verse 10. Job turned to his wife and he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What a wise man he was. We all rejoice when everything's good and we're so thankful, but can you learn from God how to be thankful that in the midst of the storm, God's there? I'll tell you the truth. God is never closer to you than he is when you're going through adversity. And you almost, you almost feel sorry for people who have never been in that place to see and to sense the wonderful provision of God. Warren Wiersbe, one of my good friends, has a sharp pen, and he wrote this. He said, God balances our lives by giving us enough blessings to keep us happy and enough burdens to keep us humble. If all we had were blessing in our hands, he said, we'd fall right over. 
So the Lord balances the blessing in our hands with burdens on our backs. <laughs> that helps us keep steady. And as we yield to him, sometimes we can even turn the burdens into blessings. Now, do you get a visual picture of that? What would happen to you if God just gave you all blessings? You'd all be bent over. You wouldn't be able to walk. You'd be all... But God gives you blessings, and then he gives you burdens, and now you can kind of stand up, and you can be straight. So be thankful for the wisdom God gives you to understand his providence in your life. And then Solomon adds, if I might paraphrase, don't even think about it. You will never figure God out anyway, so don't even try to think about it. Don't worry about it. He knows the future. You don't. So just let God be God and you be you. Wisdom to deal with prosperity, wisdom to deal with providence. And then he adds this third thought in verses 15 through 18, wisdom to deal with the puzzles of life. Now, you know, life is full of puzzles. Did you know that? Every day there's a puzzle. Things you can't figure out. One of the puzzles he talks about in verse 15 is the puzzle of reversed rewards. Notice, I have seen everything, he said, in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. <laughs> We've dealt with this one before in this series, so I won't stay here long, but why do the wicked prosper and why do the righteous suffer, Solomon says. He wants us to know that we are only seeing the outside of this puzzle, that we must get beneath the surface of this in order to understand what God is up to. And the fact is, we never are able to do all of that in this life. Listen to what King Solomon says in the 11th chapter of this book we are studying in verse 5. He said, As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. You don't. You can't figure it out. Does that bother you? You know, at first it bothered me, but now it doesn't bother me anymore. It makes me just so excited that I have a God who's so awesome that in my infinite wisdom, which is pretty finite, I can't comprehend him. Why? His ways are higher than my ways, his thoughts than my thoughts. He's the inscrutable God of history. That's why I worship him. If I could fully understand him, he would be no more of a God than I am. He's the God of history, the God of providence, the God I worship, the God I give gratitude for all that he does, even though I don't always understand it. We know that God is loving. We know that God cares about his children. And at the same time, we know that God is powerful. He can do anything he wants. How God's love and his power are blended together to create his will, we do not know and we cannot know. Solomon says we need to accept it. Remember, do not let what you can understand keep you from enjoying what you have from God. Remember the woodcutter. You only see a fragment. Remember what he said? You people are obsessed with judging. Don't go so far. Who knows if it's a blessing or a curse? No one knows. We only have a fragment. Life comes in fragments, says the woodcutter. Well, that's the puzzle of reversed rewards. And now we come to the puzzle of righteous rhetoric. And this is really one of the most difficult passages in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's the most misinterpreted passage in the entire book. Listen to what Solomon says in verses 16 and 18, and you won't have to ask me why it's misinterpreted after you read it with me. Do not be overly righteous. Do not be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. 
Now, many liberal scholars say, oh, here's the proof text. What you need is moderate holiness. Let's all applaud mediocrity. Don't be very good and don't be very bad. Just be medium. Have you ever talked to anybody like that? Sometimes you talk to somebody about their walk with the Lord. You say, do you know God? And what do they say? Well, I'M NOT AS BAD AS A LOT OF PEOPLE I KNOW, AND I'M SURELY NOT AS GOOD AS SOME PEOPLE I KNOW. I GUESS I'M JUST SORT OF MEDIUM. THEY USE THIS AS THEIR TEXT. I'LL TELL YOU WHAT, MEDIUM WON'T GET YOU INTO HEAVEN. IT WON'T. MEDIUM WILL SEND YOU STRAIGHT TO HELL. YOU, you CAN BE MEDIUM AND GET THERE JUST AS FAST AS IF YOU'RE WICKED. BECAUSE IT'S NOT SAYING JUST BE PARTIALLY GOOD, DON'T BE TOTALLY BAD. WHAT SOLOMON IS SAYING HERE IS, is IN THE HEBREW LANGUAGE, IT'S REFLEXIVE, AND HE'S SAYING, WHATEVER YOU DO, DON'T GO AROUND BRAGGING ABOUT HOW GOOD YOU ARE, AND DON'T GO AROUND BRAGGING ABOUT HOW HUMBLE YOU ARE. DON'T BE FILLED WITH RIGHTEOUSNESS THAT'S SELF-CENTERED. DON'T BE WISE IN YOUR OWN EYES, AS HE MENTIONS IN THE BOOK OF PROVERBS. DON'T BE GOING AROUND TELLING EVERYBODY HOW GOOD YOU ARE. AND ON THE OTHER HAND, DON'T BE GOING AROUND BRAGGING ABOUT HOW BAD YOU ARE. THAT'S NOT WHERE IT'S COMING FROM. THE FACT IS, THIS VERSE IS NOT CAUTIONING AGAINST BEING TOO RIGHTEOUS. IT'S WARNING US AGAINST RIGHTEOUS RHETORIC THAT'S NOT BACKED UP BY RIGHTEOUS LIVING. SOLOMON HAS MADE IT CLEAR IN VERSE 20 THAT THERE AREN'T ANY RIGHTEOUS PEOPLE. <laughs> SO HE CAN'T BE TALKING HERE ABOUT TRUE RIGHTEOUSNESS. HE'S SPEAKING OUT AGAINST THE SELF-RIGHTEOUSNESS OF THE HYPOCRITE AND THE FALSE WISDOM OF THE PROUD. AND IN BOTH CASES, THESE SINS LEAD TO DESTRUCTION. THE WAY TO AVOID THE DITCH OF SELF-RIGHTEOUSNESS AND FALSE HUMILITY IS TO STAY IN THE MIDDLE. AND THE MIDDLE OF THE ROAD IS VERSE 18. IT IS GOOD FOR YOU THAT YOU GRASP THIS. AND ALSO NOT REMOVE YOUR HAND FROM THE OTHER, FOR HE WHO FEARS GOD WILL ESCAPE THEM ALL. HOW DO YOU KEEP FROM COMING OFF SELF, HAVE YOU EVER BEEN AROUND A SELF-RIGHTEOUS PERSON? OH, MY, OUR CHURCHES ARE FULL OF THEM. I MEAN, YOU CAN SEE IT DRIPPING OFF OF THEM WHEN THEY WALK UP TO YOU. THEY EVEN HAVE A LITTLE CHURCH VOICE, HAVE YOU NOTICED? <laughs> OH, YOU KNOW, GOD SPARE US FROM THOSE FOLKS. HE'S SAYING, DON'T GET CAUGHT UP IN SELF-RIGHTEOUSNESS. AND DON'T BE WALKING AROUND BAD-MOUTHING YOURSELF ALL THE TIME. WHAT YOU NEED TO DO IS WALK IN THE FEAR OF GOD. THAT'S WHAT SOLOMON IS SAYING. STAY OFF EACH OF THE SIDE ROADS AND STAY ON THE CENTER ROAD. FEAR GOD AND WALK WITH HIM. AND HE SAYS, YOU BETTER GRAB HOLD OF THAT ONE. GRASP THAT ONE WITH YOUR HANDS. WELL, I GOT TO HURRY OR WE'RE NOT GOING TO GET FINISHED. THANK GOD FOR THE PERSPECTIVE OF WISDOM, VERSES 11 THROUGH 18. AND NOW LET'S FINISH UP THIS CHAPTER AND THANK GOD FOR THE POWER OF WISDOM. HE'S GOING TO TALK TO US HERE ABOUT HOW WISDOM, WHILE IT DOESN'T SOLVE EVERYTHING, AND IT DOESN'T GIVE YOU THE ANSWERS TO ALL THE QUESTIONS YOU WISH YOU HAD ANSWERS TO, WISDOM, FIRST OF ALL, GIVES YOU PERSPECTIVE, AS WE'VE LEARNED. HELPS YOU UNDERSTAND PROVIDENCE. IT HELPS YOU UNDERSTAND PROSPERITY. HELPS YOU FIGURE OUT SOME OF THE PUZZLES OR AT LEAST UNDERSTAND WHAT THEY'RE ALL ABOUT. BUT NOW SOLOMON IS GOING TO TEACH US THAT WISDOM ALSO HAS A POWER RESIDENT IN IT. HE SAYS IN VERSES 19 AND 20, WISDOM STRENGTHENS THE WISE MORE THAN TEN RULERS OF THE CITY. THERE'S NOT A JUST MAN ON EARTH WHO DOES GOOD AND DOES NOT SIN. WISDOM TO DEAL WITH THE PROBLEMS WE ENCOUNTER. THE WISE PERSON FEARS THE LORD SO MUCH THAT HE HAS POWER. HE IS FEARING THE LORD SO MUCH HE DOESN'T FEAR ANY MAN AT ALL. 
Yeah, that's the kind of a power you need. I fear God so much, I don't fear man at all. He walks with the Lord. He's confident that he was going to be all right. He faces the sinfulness of man and the problem of his own sin. He finds his answers in his God because that is where his fear and reverence is centered. He is strengthened by his wisdom, and he becomes more powerful than ten rulers of the city. He faces problems with confidence because he knows his God. What is it the Old Testament says? They that know their God shall do exploits. When you know God, you can be strong, not worry about what else people are saying. I always think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament who were told if they didn't bow down, they were going to burn. They didn't bow down, and they were supposed to burn, but they didn't. Hmm. And they basically said, you know, we serve a great God. If he wants to deliver us, fine. If he doesn't, it's okay. He's our God, and we trust him, and we're not afraid of you, Nebuchadnezzar. When you know God, you can be strong. You can be confident. You can have the wisdom to deal with the problems you encounter. Here's one that every one of us will get into, verses 21 and 22, wisdom to deal with the people you employ. Do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Now, this is a great, just everyday kind of good-to-use wisdom. Look up here for a moment. All of us can take a dose of this, including the pastor, especially the pastor. Don't get concerned about what people say about you. I quit reading the notes on the back of the bulletin things that are nasty. I get my secretary to read them, and if they're not good, I tell her to throw them away. <laughs> you say, Pastor, you shouldn't do that. Well, it keeps me, keeps me right, keeps me going forward, you know? So if you want, if you want to write a, a nasty note, it'll be good for you to do it and get it out of your system, but don't think it's going to hurt me because I ain't going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a little fun with you about this, but listen to what Solomon is saying. He's saying, don't pay attention to the gossip of the day because you know in your own heart that you've sometimes said things that would not be acceptable to others as well. That's what he says. For many times you also, your own heart is known that even you have cursed others. One man said, I never worry about people who say evil things about me because I know a lot more stuff about me than they do, and it's worse than what they're saying. <laughs> Amen? And Solomon says, let's be honest. If we get upset when people talk about us, we're holding them to a higher standard than we hold ourselves because we're prone to do the same thing. Isn't that true? Just when you feel upset because somebody's talking about you, you're talking about them. Wisdom to deal with problems we encounter, with the people we employ. Here's the third one. Wisdom to deal with perplexities we experience. <laughs> he says in verses 23 to 25, all this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even the foolishness of madness. Solomon says, I can't understand all these things. There's a whole book full of stuff here that he said he doesn't understand. But you know what? He, he's okay with it because he understands his God. And his God is in charge of all understanding. It's like that old phrase we used to use when I was growing up as a boy. I don't know about the future, but I know who holds the future. I know him. Solomon is telling us 
Don't get obsessed with the things you can't understand because if you keep trying to do that, you will just drive yourself crazy. There's so much about this world and this life we can't comprehend, but the one thing we do know is that God is good. Remember the little trilogy? God's plan is good, his purpose is clear, but his program's mysterious. <laughs> I'm gonna live in the first two, let him deal with the third. <laughs> I love his plan and his purpose. I know that. I don't understand sometimes what he's up to, but that's all right. Wisdom to deal with the problems we encounter and the people we employ and the perplexities we experience. And now number four, and last, wisdom to deal with the pitfalls we escape. Notice verses 26 through 29. It almost seems like it's out of place in this chapter, but it's not. He said, and I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Solomon ends this chapter on a really strange note, but especially you men, listen up. This is for all of us. Listen carefully. He talks about the power of wisdom to keep us out of illicit relationships. His wisdom will keep you from falling into the pit, being snared into an illicit relationship, or wisdom will keep you out of an affair. That's what he's saying. Ray Steadman, a pastor who used to pastor up in the northern part of California, who's now with the Lord, wrote in, one of his writings about Ecclesiastes, he said, Solomon was trapped himself by sexual seductions. He went looking for love. Many a man or woman can echo what he is saying. He went looking for love and thought he would find it in a relationship with a woman. He went looking for that which would support him, strengthen him, and make him feel life was worth the living. But what he found was nothing but a fleeting sexual thrill. He found himself involved with a woman who did not give him what he was looking for at all, he still felt the same empty loneliness as before. Solomon says, be wise, men. Don't get caught up in the idea that the grass is greener on the other side. Don't get caught up and think that you can find meaning and happiness and fulfillment and all that you've been looking for in some woman who's not your wife. One day a guy asked me, he says, well, Pastor Jeremiah, what if I married the wrong woman? And I always say the same thing. If you're married, you're married to the right woman. <laughs> and you just settle that and get rid of that discussion right there. You better honor that woman. And don't let the devil get you caught up in the idea that you can find something better somewhere else because it never really happens that way. It comes with a bitter, bitter price. That's just the way it is. You look back, and some of you, I'm not picking on any of you who've had difficult times in your life. Maybe you've been through a divorce, and, and you come to church here, and you know we love you and serve you and work with you and don't even think about you being any different than the rest of us, except if we could sit down over a cup of coffee in the curbside cafe here and talk about what it's like, you would tell, you, you would tell your story. And your story would be filled with God's grace in helping you through this giving you another chance, but it would also be filled with a sorrow that goes almost to the point of the sorrow of death, of a relationship that once was and is no more. And those of us who have been blessed and God has been gracious to us for that not to have happened know what it's like to look back over a long life of marriage together and remember the discoveries 
and remember the intimacies and remember the joys and remember the growth and remember all the things that we share together, every memory on the same page. Because we've developed this thing together through life. Solomon is saying, don't let somebody steal that from you because of having a bad day at home or your wife had a bad hair day or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> because what you have with that partner of yours is so special, you need to step back and take a look at it and give thanks to God. Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. Let me just tell you something. When I read all of these things about wisdom in the Old Testament, I'm thankful I'm an Old Testament student and a New Testament saint. <laughs> because you know what the Bible says in the New Testament? Listen to me carefully. In Jesus Christ, watch this, Colossians 2, in Jesus Christ are all the treasures of the wisdom of God. Do you know when you're facing all these issues and you don't know what to do? You accept the fact that you're finite, you're human. We all are. We don't have the capacity to understand Almighty God. But you know what? We know Jesus Christ. He's the wisdom of God. And he put his Holy Spirit in us. When we accept Christ, we get Jesus Christ and his Spirit comes to live within us. And he is the one who is the discerner in our lives. You say, do you have absolute wisdom? No, but I'll be just bold enough to tell you I got more wisdom than somebody that doesn't know Christ because I got Christ. Amen. And I wouldn't know how to get through life as messed up as it is today if I didn't have Jesus Christ living in my heart. I know that I can go to him at any time and he'll help me sort things out. He won't give me all the truth that there is. He'll just give me enough to help me know what to do for this day. He gives it to me like the manna in the Old Testament, just enough one day at a time. Isn't that wonderful? And so I want to tell you that one of the things I learn about life when I read the book of Ecclesiastes is that you don't want to go through life under the sun without God. You want to go through the life with the sun, S-O-N, with Jesus Christ. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I want to urge you today. You think life can get better? Oh, it can get a lot better, even right here. He's come to give you abundant life, life more abundantly. My goodness, that's good stuff. I tell you, did y'all get all that? Did y'all write all that down? I think I'm going to go back and just read Ecclesiastes 7 and kind of just kind of soak in it for a while because it's so good. There's so much stuff in there. And um, wisdom is better than riches. Think of that. We're all wanting riches for the most part of us. And uh, really, wisdom is better. Wealth is a curse without wisdom. I've had, I've had, I had a wealthy person one time to tell me he came and shared with me and <clears throat> how, how all of a sudden he had a lot of wealth. And I mean, he was a very wealthy person. And we sat and talked for a while. And he was so excited and uh, had millions, millions. And uh, th then we talked again about four or five years later, and he came to me. He came to me, wanted to meet with me, and he said, you know, I shared with you uh, how I'd been blessed with millions. And I said, I remember that. He said, 
He said the blessing turned out to be a curse. And, and you know, when you, when, you, when you look at these who win the lottery and what happens to them in their lives, the majority of them are far worse after they won the lottery than they were before the lottery. So you have to be careful. Wealth can be a curse. It is a curse without wisdom. And you're better off to be poor, he says, if you lack wisdom. So wisdom is wisdom's pretty important. God's never closer to you than when you go through adversity. Got to remember that. Whatever you're going through, I'm, I'm closer to God when I'm in adversity than I am when I'm not in adversity. Can you relate to that? Amen. I can. God gives us burdens to kind of balance the blessings. There's a great illustration with his hands outstretched. And we don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. Remember the woodcutter? Kind of got dizzy listening to that, but, but uh, a lot of truth, a lot of truth to it. Fear God in your daily walk. Don't get caught up in self-righteousness. And he went on to say, fear God is not... Uh, uh, when you fear God, you can be strong. I mean, uh, who, what can man do when you have God on your side? So, And then he says, don't pay attention to the gossip of the day. Because if you remember, you do the same thing. So good, so good. Jason, thank you, brother, for, for sharing tonight. And, and Jason, uh, you know, he, brought, he, he did the first part of chapter 7. And I use that first part. Uh, in funerals a lot um, about uh, how it's um, a funeral is to go to the house of mourning is be is better to go to the house of laughter it's better you learn more when you go to a funeral than you go to when you go to a party I mean you go to a funeral and you sit there and you learn so much and especially the preacher talks about for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and God's prepared a place for those who put their faith and trust in him and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved you learn a lot than when you go to a tunica or something like that so uh, so much in Ecclesiastes and so uh, let me encourage you to just go back and reread and reread and get in it. That's what I plan to do. Jason, again, thank you for giving your time to it and sharing with us and bringing all this together.